Welcome, everybody, to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The event we're analyzing today is PT-109. If you're not a baby boomer, you might not recognize that title. PT-109 was the name of a boat in World War II that was captained by Lieutenant Junior Grade John F. Kennedy when it was cut in half by a Japanese destroyer on August 2, 1943. This is the story of a young Jack Kennedy as a true war hero. It's rare to say that one of our leaders was an actual hero in the true definition of that term. Of course, we've had several famous generals who became president, most notably George Washington, Ulysses S. Grant, and Dwight D. Eisenhower. You can also throw in William Henry Harrison. And in case you don't remember that last one, he's famous for two things. Number one, possibly the most famous campaign slogan in American history was Tippy Canoe and Tyler Two. William Henry Harrison had the nickname of Tippy Canoe because he won the Battle of Tippy Canoe against Native Americans. Reason number two, and this is what Harrison is most famous for, is having the shortest presidency. He died after only one month in office. Some American political leaders were not commanding generals, but served on the front lines. George H.W. Bush, meaning the elder George Bush, was a naval aviator in World War II. In case you're not familiar with that term, the Navy does not call the people who fly planes pilots. They are called aviators. George Bush flew several combat missions in the Pacific from an aircraft carrier. We don't have to limit ourselves to presidents when talking about true heroes who became political leaders. If you're not familiar with the late Arizona Senator John McCain, I'd highly recommend that you read about his service record in the Vietnam War. The short version of the story is this. John McCain was a naval aviator who was shot down over North Vietnam and was a prisoner of war for about five and a half years. Amazingly, He turned down the opportunity for an early release because there were other Americans who had been in prison longer than he had, and they deserved to be released first. My father was in the Army during World War II and served in North Africa, Sicily, and Italy. When I was a kid, my friends and I didn't think much about World War II veterans. It didn't seem like a big deal. Just about every one of our dads had served in World War II. It wasn't until I was an adult that it dawned on me what an incredible sacrifice this was for that entire generation. And I'm certainly not limiting myself to World War II. The brave men and women who serve in the military at any time have given so much for the rest of us. But today's episode is about a particular story of heroism which occurred in August 1943 in the South Pacific. It's the story of the captain of a PT boat who saved his crew. The U.S. joined World War II after the surprise attack at the American military base in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Here's the memorable description from President Franklin Roosevelt as he addressed the Congress and asked for a declaration of war against Japan. Yesterday... December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire 
of Japan. That declaration of war by the U.S. Congress on December 8, 1941 was only against Japan. As you all know, America also got into the war in Europe against Germany and Italy. Here's a good trivia question. Throughout his maniacal reign as the dictator of Germany, how many times did Adolf Hitler declare war against another country? The answer, only once. Throughout all of his wars of aggression, Hitler and Nazi Germany only declared war against one country. Hitler declared war against the United States on December 11, 1941. All of the other times, Hitler just ordered his military to invade other countries without a declaration of war. After Pearl Harbor, the Japanese conquered huge swaths of territory throughout Asia and the Pacific Ocean. Of significance to this episode is the Japanese conquest and occupation of the Solomon Islands. The Solomons are an archipelago located northeast of Australia and just east of New Guinea. Fun fact, New Guinea is the second largest island in the world. The only island which is larger is Greenland. New Guinea has an area of approximately 303,000 square miles or 785,000 square kilometers. At the beginning of World War II, the Solomon Islands were part of the British Empire. In the first half of 1942, the Japanese occupied the Solomon Islands. The Japanese built naval and air bases in these islands as they tried to isolate Australia and New Zealand from their American allies. On August 7, 1942, American Marines landed on three of the Solomon Islands. The major campaign occurred on one of those islands, Guadalcanal. That battle dragged on for over six months until the Japanese finally withdrew from Guadalcanal in February 1943. In the summer of 1943, the U.S. was still battling the Japanese for control of the Solomon Islands. That's where JFK and PT-109 come in. What was a PT boat? The initials PT stood for Patrol Torpedo. For some reason, they were called boats and not ships. The American Navy is very fussy about a lot of terms. I'm not sure why, but today a submarine is always referred to as a boat, but just about everything else in the U.S. Navy is called a ship. In World War II, PTs were called boats, and I think it's because of their small size. PT boats were small and fast. The most remarkable thing about them, they were made out of wood. A few different manufacturers made the PT boats for the U.S. Navy in World War II, and they varied a little bit. I'll give you the details of the boats that were made by a company called Elko in Bayonne, New Jersey, because PT-109 was one of the Elko boats. The Elko boats were 80 feet long and 20 feet 8 inches at the beam. The beam is the widest part of a boat. The PT boats were powered by three 12-cylinder Packard gasoline engines. Each engine powered its own screw propeller, meaning that there were three propellers. PT boats had a top speed of approximately 41 knots. If you're not familiar with that term knots, that's how speed is calculated on the water. One knot equals about 1.15 miles per hour or 1.85 kilometers per hour. Where does that term come from? According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration of the U.S. government, the term knot dates from the 17th century when sailors measured the speed of their ship 
by the use of a device called a common log. This device was a coil rope with uniformly spaced knots tied in it, attached to a piece of wood shaped like a slice of pie. The piece of wood was lowered from the back of the ship and allowed to float behind it. The line was allowed to go out freely from the coil as the piece of wood fell behind the ship for a specific amount of time. When the specific amount of time had passed, the line was pulled in and the number of knots on the rope between the ship and the wood were counted. The speed of the ship was said to be the number of knots counted. Different PT boats had different armaments. PT-109 had a 20 millimeter anti-aircraft gun. It also had four 50 caliber machine guns. The machine guns were located in two turrets which could fully rotate. Each turret had twin 50 caliber machine guns. But the supposed main weapon against larger surface ships was torpedoes. PT-109 carried four torpedoes, two on each side. The problem is that they were the Mark 8 torpedoes, which did not work very well. The Mark 8 torpedoes did not often run true, meaning they did not go in a straight line like they were supposed to, to hit an enemy ship. And even worse, more than half the time, the Mark 8 torpedo failed to explode. Later on, the US Navy replaced the Mark 8 torpedoes with a new model which worked much better. The PT-109 also had two depth charges. A depth charge kind of looks like a metal barrel which would be dropped into the water and set to explode at a certain depth to be used against submarines. The day before PT-109 was sunk, Kennedy had added an army 37 millimeter anti-tank gun. He placed it on the foredeck, meaning the front of the boat. To make room for the 37 millimeter anti-tank gun, a two-man life raft was removed. The gun was fastened to the deck with some timbers, which will come into play later in the story. Some PT boats had radar. Unfortunately, PT-109 did not. Now that you know about the boat, and the general outline of what was going on in the Solomon Islands in the summer of 1943, it's time to go into the story of PT-109. JFK took command of PT-109 on April 25, 1943. Before Kennedy became the skipper, PT-109 had conducted 22 combat operations around Iron Bottom Sound. That's not the official name for that body of water, but it's what Allied military personnel called the water between Guadalcanal and Florida Islands. It was called Iron Bottom Sound because of all of the Japanese and Allied ships and planes that were sunk there during the Battle of Guadalcanal. PT-109 was stationed in the port of Tulagi. Kennedy was only 25 years old when he became the captain of PT-109. He was only 26 during the key events of August 1943. This was part of the appeal of PT boats. Young men could become captains of their own vessels. I think it's something that gets way overlooked when we watch war movies. Most of the soldiers, sailors, marines, and air personnel from all of these countries were practically kids. When you think about men storming the beaches at Normandy on D-Day, you pictured these grizzled veterans, but most of them were teenagers or in their early 20s. I know that my father was only 18 years old when he landed in North Africa as part of the American Army. When I was 18, 
I thought it was a big accomplishment going away to college at Notre Dame, which was over 700 miles away from home. I have no idea how any teenager survives a combat situation. During the spring and summer of 1943, Kennedy assembled a crew for PT-109. The XO, meaning executive officer, was Ensign Leonard, or Lenny, Tom. The XO is second in command. Interesting side note, Lenny Tom was a big guy who played football at Ohio State. Along with the two officers, there were 10 enlisted men on PT-109. The PT boats mainly operated at night. It was almost impossible for the Japanese to see the small PT boats at night, even with radar. But the Japanese planes could often find the PT boats at night because of their telltale phosphorescent wakes. In case you're unfamiliar with that term, the wake is the disturbance of the water resulting from a boat being propelled through the water. In the Solomon Islands, the propellers of the PT boats created a phosphorescent wake. I have no science background, but from what I've read, there are microscopic marine organisms in the water that give off a certain glow when they are disturbed. A boat's propellers churned up this microscopic marine life and created phosphorescent wakes behind the boats. Some PT crews describe those phosphorescent wakes at night like a giant arrow pointing any enemy planes exactly to the location of the rear of the PT boat. The Japanese float planes would then bomb the PT boats. In mid-July 1943, PT-109, along with about 25 other PT boats, was moved forward to a new base on the island of Rendova. During July and August 1943, the main mission of these PT boats was to intercept and harass the Tokyo Express. That's what the Allied forces called the convoys of Japanese naval ships, which delivered personnel, equipment, and supplies to the Japanese garrisons on the various Solomon Islands. The Tokyo Express was mostly comprised of Japanese destroyers. They made their deliveries at night to avoid Allied aircraft, which could easily spot them during the day. Japanese destroyers were over 300 feet long, meaning over 100 meters. And of course, the Japanese destroyers were made out of steel. Keep these factors of size and construction in mind for later in this episode. When the PT boats were out on a mission at night, they were ordered to keep strict radio silence. On moonless nights, they often could not see each other. This meant that with the radio silence, they were often operating independently. Between July 15 and July 31, 1943, JFK and PT-109 completed seven combat patrols. It's now time to talk about the big collision. On August 1, 1943, PT-109 and 14 other PT boats were sent out to intercept the Tokyo Express in Blackett Strait. That is a passage of water in the Solomon Islands between Kalambangara Island and islands to the south and west. Kalambagara was the largest island in the area and was garrisoned with around 10,000 Japanese soldiers. Some of you might be wondering, how did the Americans know that the Tokyo Express would be coming through the Solomon Islands that night? It's because at an earlier time, American codebreakers had cracked the Japanese naval codes. So they knew that the Tokyo Express would be going through Blackett Strait on the night of August 1 to August 2. 15 PT boats 
were sent out that night. They were divided into groups of four PT boats each. Obviously, one of the groups had only three boats. The lead boat in each group had radar. Most of the other boats, including PT-109, did not have radar. The plan was that the lead boat with radar would be in front, and when the radar picked up the Japanese destroyers, they would launch their torpedoes, and then the other three boats in the group would follow suit. After firing all four torpedoes, each PT boat would head back to base. Unfortunately, it was an extremely dark, moonless night, and the boats lost visual contact with each other. On the afternoon of August 1, 1943, as PT-109 and the other boats were getting ready for their mission that night, Kennedy ran into an officer he knew, Ensign George H.R. Ross. For some reason, he was known as Barney, but I don't know why. That wasn't his first name or his middle name. Anyway, Barney Ross was a man without a boat. He had been the executive officer on PT-166, which had been sunk 10 days earlier by friendly fire from American B-25 bombers. Ross asked Kennedy if he could tag along on PT-109 that night, and Kennedy agreed. Think about how this changed the life of Barney Ross. He wasn't even assigned to PT-109. He easily just could have stayed at the base, but he happened to go along on the night that the boat was cut in half. The addition of Ensign Ross brought the total number of men on PT-109 to 13. At dusk on August 1, the 15 PT boats left their base and headed off for the position off of the coast of Kalambagara Island, approximately 40 miles away. When they reached their assigned positions, the boat stopped moving and simply waited for the Tokyo Express. The 15 PT boats, with approximately 180 total men, were spread out over six miles. After midnight, some of the PT boats found the Tokyo Express and fired their torpedoes at the Japanese destroyers. There were no explosions. Did some of the torpedoes hit the Japanese destroyers but did not detonate? We just don't know. By this time, PT-109 was separated from the other PT boats. Kennedy's boat was probably more than a mile away from any other of the PT boats. In the darkness, most of the boats had lost visual contact with each other and had drifted apart. By around 2 a.m. on August 2, 1943, PT-109 was located between Kalambagara Island and Vela La Vela Island. Kennedy only had one of the engines engaged, going approximately six knots. The other two engines were idling. This was done intentionally to cut down on the phosphorescent weight. They were trying to avoid being seen by Japanese ships or planes. Having only one engine engaged also cut down on the tremendous noise from the three engines. This was important as they were trying to hear any Japanese float planes which might be circling overhead. Ensign Barney Ross, the guy who was not even assigned to PT-109 but just tagged along that particular evening, was the forward lookout on the bow of the boat. He spotted a Japanese destroyer heading towards PT-109. He yelled, Ship at 2 o'clock. In case you're not familiar with the military terminology, 12 o'clock was straight ahead and 6 o'clock was directly behind. And the other directions corresponded to positions on an analog clock face. From the time that the Japanese destroyer was spotted, Kennedy had only about 10 to 15 seconds before impact. That night, four Japanese destroyers, including the Amagari, delivered supplies 
to Kalambagara and were headed back to their base. The Imagadi was going 34 knots at the time of the collision. Kohei Hanami was the captain of the Amagadi that night. When PT-109 was spotted by a lookout on the Amagadi, Hanami made the decision to ram the PT boat. At first, Kennedy thought that the oncoming ship was another PT boat, but then he saw the size of the oncoming vessel, which was about three times the size of PT-109. Kennedy later stated that he immediately decided to turn his boat in the direction of the oncoming Japanese destroyer to try to shoot it with a torpedo. This would also have the benefit of presenting a smaller target. The PT boat was only about 20 feet across, but was 80 feet long. So if only the front of the PT-109 was facing the Amagadi, it would be a much smaller target. There was not nearly enough time to turn PT-109 and face the oncoming Japanese destroyer. Kennedy tried to turn the boat and to increase the engine speed, but it was too late. Kennedy yelled, Sound General Quarters. The collision occurred at 2.27 a.m. on August 2, 1943. The steel bow of the Amagadi crashed into the wooden PT boat. The sharp bow of the Amagadi pierced the starboard side of PT-109 near one of the torpedo tubes. Kennedy was thrown onto the deck which aggravated his chronic back problems. JFK was born with a bad back, and this incident certainly made it worse. I'll explain the significance of his back problems later on. The Amagadi sheared off a section of the starboard stern, meaning the right rear of the boat. The cutoff stern sank. This was the heaviest part of the boat where the three large engines were located. Two of the sailors were immediately killed. 19-year-old Harold Marney and 25-year-old Andrew Kirksey. Neither were ever seen and no trace of either man was ever found. The boat exploded into a large fireball. The gasoline continued to burn on the surface of the water. Most of the men had been thrown into the water. Imagine how utterly terrifying this had to have been. Possibly before you could even understand what was happening, your boat was cut into two pieces by an enemy ship. There was an explosion and now you're in the water. This is very deep water, about 1,200 feet deep, and it's known to be shark infested. And as you look around, you can't see the remnants of your boat. All you can see are pockets of fire from the gasoline burning on the ocean's surface. Because of the sealed watertight compartments below deck, the bow of the PT boat remained afloat. The only sailor who had been below deck at the time of the collision was Patrick McMahon. He was below deck because he was operating the engines. Contrary to popular belief, the captain in the cockpit was not controlling the engines. A captain, such as Kennedy, was steering the boat. But in the cockpit of a PT boat, the captain was connected to the engine room by way of an engine telegraph. When the captain moved the engine throttles, he was sending a visual message to the motor machinist's mate down at the engines for idle, reverse, forward, and what speed. This is what Patrick McMahon was doing at the time of the collision. He's an interesting person because he was 37 years old at the time, which made him much older than anybody else on PT-109. Because of his age, he was known as Pappy McMahon 
to the rest of the crew. A burst of flames engulfed Patrick McMahon, and he was badly burned on his face, chest, and limbs. Remarkably, McMahon did not get pulled down with the engines in the stern of the boat. He was initially pulled into water, but then popped up to the surface due to his life jacket. In combat situations, all of the men on PT boats were wearing life jackets. There were 13 men on PT-109 at the time of the collision. As I told you, two of them died instantly. That left 11 survivors. There were the three officers on board, Lieutenant John Kennedy, the executive officer, Ensign Lenny Tom, and the ensign who chose to go along on PT-109 that night, Barney Ross. There were also eight enlisted men who survived. They were the severely burned Pappy McMahon, Edgar Maurer, John McGuire, Raymond Albert, Charles Bucky Harris, George Zinzer, William Johnston, and Raymond Starkey. They were all injured to some degree. Before I go further with the narrative, we have to explore a question which has been raised over the years. Was JFK at fault for the loss of PT-109? The answer is no. I've read people both accusing and defending Kennedy for this incident. It seems that the people who try to find fault with JFK can't point to anything specific that he did wrong. They just use a conclusory argument of, well, he was the captain and his boat got cut in half and sank, so he must be responsible. But they can't point to any real negligence. Some people have argued that not having all three engines engaged was negligent. But as I explained earlier, there were good reasons for this. PT captains dreaded the phosphorescent wake churned up by the propellers, which led to being bombed by Japanese aircraft. So whenever they could, they tried to churn the water at the stern of their boats as little as possible. Having only one propeller going and at a very low speed meant much less phosphorescent wake. Also, the engines on PT boats were very noisy. When you are sitting on a boat in complete darkness and you don't have radar, you are mostly relying on sound. So you want to keep your boat as quiet as possible. The short answer is there was nothing Kennedy or any other PT skipper could have done in those 10 to 15 seconds between when the Japanese destroyer was first spotted and the collision. The U.S. Navy did not find any fault with Kennedy. To the contrary, he received the Navy and Marine Corps Medal along with the Purple Heart. In the spring of 1944, Kennedy, Ross, and Tom each received the Navy and Marine Corps Medal. More important than the Navy not finding Kennedy at fault for the incident, all of the 10 other men who survived PT-109 only gave Kennedy praise. None of them ever claimed that JFK was at all to blame. They all credited him with getting them through the ordeal. Back to the narrative. Because of the explosion, some had been thrown far away from the others and could not see any of their shipmates. Your life jacket is keeping you afloat, but what should you do? If you decided to start swimming, which direction would you go? You can't really see what's going on. Remember, this was a moonless night. It's pitch black and you are floating in the middle of the ocean, seemingly all by yourself. Obviously, JFK was very shaken up, but he knew he had to take control of the situation. He was on the front half of the boat, which was still afloat. Kennedy called out into the darkness, 
Asking who was on board, two enlisted men replied, Maurer and McGuire. Kennedy was worried that the floating half of the boat was going to explode because of the nearby flames. He ordered the two sailors to follow him into the water, and they swam away from the wreckage of PT-109. After about 15 minutes or so, the flames had petered out, so they swam back to what remained of their PT boat. Kennedy told the two sailors to stay on board, and he went to find any other survivors. Harris had injured his leg, and McMahon, Zinzer, and Johnston had all suffered burns. And the salt water contributed to the pain on all of the burned parts of their bodies. JFK was an excellent swimmer. Five years prior, he had been on the Harvard swimming team. Kennedy towed McMahon by pulling the severely burned sailor by the strap of his life jacket. It took Kennedy almost an hour to get McMahon back to the boat. It took so long because a strong current was pulling the survivors away from the wreckage of the PT boat. Maurer had the boat's blinker device, which he used as a signal to show the survivors in the water where PT-109 was located. Eventually, all of the other survivors made it back to the floating bow of the ship. Some had to be helped by those who were in better shape. Ensign Lenny Tom had to pull Johnston, who was badly injured, back to the boat. It took Tom more than two hours to pull the injured sailor through the stiff current. Mauer and McGuire helped those in the water get onto the boat. About three hours after the collision, all 11 survivors were back aboard the floating bow portion of PT-109. They continued to look for the other two men and to call out their names, but they never found any traces of Harold Marney or Andrew Kirksey. Throughout the night, they waited on the deck of the wreckage of PT-109 for a rescue party. No PT boats arrived. No rescue party had been sent. The three PT boats which had been in the vicinity during the time of the collision had all returned to base. This has remained controversial. The commanding officer at the base took the position that from the descriptions of the explosion, there could not have been any survivors, and so he was not going to send more men to possibly get killed in a vain rescue attempt. Finally, the 11 men fell asleep on the deck. The wreckage of PT-109 drifted south throughout the night. When the sun came up on the morning of August 2, 1943, the 11 survivors were clinging to the remainder of their boat. They were within sight of at least two islands with Japanese outposts. If they remained with the PT-109, it seemed likely that eventually the Japanese would see them and the Americans would either be captured or killed. The boat was slowly sinking. Only about 15 feet of the bow of PT-109 remained out of the water. The bow rotated in the water and eventually only the keel was facing up. The 11 survivors floated in the water holding onto the floating keel of their boat. They were certainly worried that the Japanese would find them, but they held out hope that they still might be rescued. By around 1 o'clock p.m., they concluded that no rescue was coming. Kennedy decided that they needed to swim to a safe island before dark. The captain had to decide which island. Kennedy presumed that any of the islands of decent size would contain Japanese soldiers. So he selected a very small island called Plum Pudding Island. If that name sounds very British, it is. Before World War II, the Solomons had been part of the British Empire. The island is no longer called Plum Pudding Island. Because of the events of August 1943, 
and the fact that he later became president, the island is now known as Kennedy Island. Kennedy pulled the most severely injured sailor, Pappy McMahon, all the way to Plum Pudding Island. Kennedy swam the breaststroke and had the strap of McMahon's life jacket in his mouth. The other survivors swam together. They used two large planks which had been placed on the boat the day before to secure that 37 millimeter anti-tank gun. The men could hold onto the planks as they paddled and kicked. As I'm describing this, I'm sure this is all sounding very strenuous, but it gets worse when you find out how far it was to Plum Pudding Island. It was about three and a half miles or 5.6 kilometers. Imagine swimming that distance in the open ocean with strong currents. And none of them had anything to eat or drink for well over 12 hours. And oh, by the way, once you got near any of the islands in the Solomons, you also had to possibly face saltwater crocodiles, which are incredibly dangerous. It took four hours to swim to Plum Pudding Island. When they got to the island, all of these men suffered cuts from the sharp coral. If you've never stepped on or bumped against coral, I can tell you it really cuts easily. After they rested, the survivors from PT-109 examined Plum Pudding Island. This was a very small island, about 300 feet by 200 feet. They confirmed that they were the only people on the island. There were coconuts on the island, but they were unripe and inedible. Most importantly, they discovered that there was no fresh water on the tiny island. How could they signal any potential rescuers without also notifying the Japanese? The answer, they couldn't. All they could do was wait for help. But Kennedy came up with a plan. He figured that the last several nights, PT boats had been cruising through Ferguson Passage. So he decided that he would swim out into Ferguson Passage with the one lantern that they had. He would float in the water with his life jacket and hope to flag down a passing PT boat. So he went out that same night, the evening of August 2nd. We don't know how far he swam that night, maybe two or three miles. Obviously, you know that he survives this ordeal because he later becomes president. But it is amazing that he did not die that night. There were many ways that he could have been killed, including sharks or saltwater crocodiles, being run over by a Japanese or American boat, being carried by a current out to the open ocean where it'd be too far to swim back to any island, or the most likely of all, being shot by the Japanese or the Americans. Several officers in the U.S. Navy who were stationed in the Solomons at that time later stated that they would have opened fire if they saw light on the water. The PT boats were on full alert when on patrol. Since the American boats were not using any running lights, they would presume that any light they saw was not friendly and would have fired upon what they would have thought would be an enemy vessel. On the night of August 2 to August 3, there were no PT boats in Ferguson Passage. After spending the entire night in the water, Kennedy made it back to Plum Pudding Island in the morning. JFK told Barney Ross that he was going out that night. Ross thought that this was extremely dangerous and had very little chance of success, but he still did it. Even though John Kennedy is the subject of this podcast episode, we have to acknowledge that all of the survivors from PT-109 suffered a great deal and demonstrated their own heroics. 
Barney Ross went out to Ferguson Passage that night. He didn't see any PT boats. He returned the next morning exhausted without finding any help. By Wednesday, August 4, 1943, Kennedy realized that they had to move to another island. You can survive without food much longer than you can last without water. Going to another island meant risking that the new island might have Japanese troops. But they could not survive much longer without water. Kennedy selected Olasana Island. They swam to Olasana Island the same way they had to Plum Pudding Island. Kennedy pulled McMahon all the way and the others used the wooden planks. Unfortunately, there was no fresh water on this island either. On the night of August 4, the weather was too rough, so neither Kennedy nor Ross went out to search for any passing PT boats. On August 5, Kennedy and Ross both swam the approximately half mile to Nauru Island. On Nauru, they found a small canoe along with packages of crackers and candy and a 50-gallon drum of drinkable water that had been left by the Japanese. During World War II, there was a division of the Royal Australian Navy, which was organized into a coast-watching service. These guys were scattered on islands throughout the Pacific, armed only with binoculars, a radio, and small firearms. They were usually by themselves. They would observe the movements of the Japanese military and report these movements by radio to Allied bases. This was a lonely and extremely dangerous job. If they were caught by the Japanese, they might be imprisoned as a POW, or they might simply be killed, and there was nobody there to rescue them. The Coast Watchers were sent out individually by the Australian Navy, but they were greatly assisted by the natives of these various islands. You might wonder, why would the indigenous people of the Solomons want to help the Australians or the British Empire or their American allies. It came down to this. The occupying Japanese forces were so brutal to the local peoples that the Australians, British, and Americans seemed like the good guys. Of significance to the PT-109 story is Australian Coast Watcher Lieutenant Arthur Reginald Evans. He had seen the explosion of PT-109. Evans saw the explosion from his observation post on Kalambagara Island. That's the island where I told you the Japanese had about 10,000 soldiers. After seeing the explosion of PT-109, Evans told the various local peoples that were assisting him in spying on the Japanese to keep an eye out for any possible survivors. This brings us to two teenagers named Byuku Gasa and Ironi Kumana. In August 1943, they were both 19 years old and were scouts for Coast Watcher Reg Evans. Gasa and Kumana were natives of the Solomon Islands. On August 5, 1943, Gasa and Kumana stopped their canoe on Olasana Island. They were startled to see anybody on the island. The two Solomon Islanders spoke very little English, but they were able to communicate with the American sailors. The scouts gave the starving Americans some yams. Lenny Tom asked the scouts to take him to Rendova. They tried, but the small canoe was unstable for three people in the open water, and they realized they could not make it the approximately 35 miles or so to Rendova Island. So they returned to Olasana. 
Fortunately, one of the sailors had a pencil, and another one of the crew members had found a piece of scrap paper on Olasana Island. Executive Officer Lenny Tom wrote out a message. Here's the text. To Commanding Officer Oak O. From Crew PT-109 Oak 14. Subject, Rescue of 11 men lost since Sunday, August 1, in enemy action. Native knows our position and will bring PT boat back to small islands of Ferguson Passage off Nauru Island. A small boat, outboard or oars, is needed to take men off as some are seriously burned. Signal at night, three dashes. Password, Roger. Answer, Wilco. If attempted at daytime, advise air coverage or a PBY could set down. Please work out a suitable plan and act immediately. Help is urgent and in sore need. Rely on native boys to any extent. LJ Tom, Ensign, USNR, Exec 109. While this was going on, Kennedy rowed the canoe that he had found on Nauru back to Olasana Island and shared the food and water with the other nine men. He had towed the water drum. Ross stayed on Nauru. Kennedy met the two native scouts. On August 6th, the scouts took JFK to Nauru, which was only about a half a mile away. On Nauru, Kennedy asked the two scouts to go on to Rendova Island to seek help. Even though they already had the pencil note from the executive officer, Tom, they thought it would be a good idea to have a message from Kennedy. It's unclear why they also needed a message from JFK. Perhaps it was because he was the captain, or maybe they were worried that the paper note written with pencil might get wet and get ruined. I have been unable to find an answer as to why they needed a secondary message, but those are my guesses. It was the Solomon's Island native Gasa who came up with the idea of carving a note into a coconut. Kennedy used the knife and carved the following message onto a coconut husk. Nauru Island, native nose position, he can pilot, 11 alive, need small boat, Kennedy. The two teenage natives then took the coconut and Ensign Tom's paper note in their canoe and headed towards Rendova Island. It was a dangerous journey. Rendova was about 35 miles away. The two scouts would be paddling their canoe through waters controlled by Japanese planes and ships. If they were detained by the Japanese and the coconut and paper notes were discovered, it would lead the Japanese to the stranded Americans. It might also lead to a death sentence for the two natives for helping the American sailors. Gasa and Kumana first stopped at Wanawana Island and reported to senior scout Benjamin Kevu. Kevu was fluent in English. Kevu gave the men a larger canoe. He also assigned a third man to go on the mission to Randova Island, a scout named John Kari. Kari was also fluent in English. Benjamin Kevu notified Australian coast watcher Reg Evans about the survivors from PT-109 so he could pass along the information by radio. Evans sent a canoe with supplies to the survivors on Nauru and Olasana Islands. 
Before the supplies arrived, JFK decided to go out to Ferguson Passage again with the ship's lantern to try to flag down any PT boats. Obviously, he was hoping that the paper and coconut messages would get through to the Allied base on Rendova, but he wasn't sure that the scouts would make it. This time, he would not have to swim. Kennedy and Ross had the two-man canoe. They tried to paddle out to Ferguson Passage, but the sea was very rough. The canoe was flipped over, and Kennedy and Ross had to go back to Nauru Island. It didn't matter. No PT boats were patrolling Ferguson Passage the night of August 6 to 7 anyway. On the morning of August 7, Evans sent a radio message to Rendova Island Allied Base. Also on August 7, the canoe carrying the three native scouts, Gasa, Kumana, and Kari, arrived at the Allied Base with the coconut and paper messages. At first, the commanding officer was skeptical, but the combination of the two written messages, along with the radio report from Coast Watcher Evans, convinced the Allied commander that it was true that most of the crew from PT-109 had survived. August 7, a rescue canoe was sent by Evans to Olasana with food and water. Later on August 7, that canoe took JFK to Gomu Island, where Evans was then located. In the early hours, on August 8, 1943, PT-157 rescued the survivors. PT-157 first picked up the three scouts, Kari, Gasa, and Kumana. They led PT-157 to where Kennedy was located. JFK then led PT-157 to Olasana Island and they picked up the survivors. They returned to the Allied base on Rendova. They were in bad shape physically, and they were all sent to a medical facility on Tulagi. JFK had the opportunity to be sent back to the U.S. and serve out the remainder of the war there. Kennedy chose to stay in the Solomon Islands. On September 1, 1943, Kennedy was given a new command, PT-59. This was only three weeks after the PT-109 crew had been rescued. The XO from PT-109 Ensign Lenny Tom was given command of his own PT boat. Since the torpedo attacks from PT boats had been very ineffective, in the fall of 1943, the U.S. Navy decided to change the nature of PT boats in the South Pacific. Instead of being torpedo boats, they would be gunboats. On PT-59, Kennedy removed the four torpedo tubes, two of the depth charges, and the 20-millimeter gun. This allowed for the installation of new and additional guns. The PT-59 was armed with 10 50-caliber machine guns and two 40-millimeter cannons. They also reinforced the decks with armor plating. In the fall of 1943, Kennedy led 13 patrols of PT-59. But on November 18, 1943, Kennedy was relieved of command of PT-59 due to his deteriorating health. He was sent to the hospital on Tulagi Island. He was diagnosed with malaria and colitis, along with an ulcer and chronic disc disease of the lower back. In December 1943, JFK was sent to San Francisco for medical treatment. He was discharged from the Navy about a year later 
because of his poor health. In June of 1944, an article about JFK and PT-109 was published in the New Yorker magazine. Then, Reader's Digest ran a condensed version of that New Yorker article in their August 1944 edition. Today, print media is almost dead, but in the middle of the 20th century, the New Yorker was famous and Reader's Digest was huge. JFK became a national figure. Did JFK's heroics, and more importantly, the publicity of the PT-109 story, lead to his older brother dying? Maybe. The older brother was named Joseph Kennedy Jr. He was a naval aviator in the European theater of World War II. Joe Kennedy Jr. qualified for return to the States after piloting 35 missions. But after the article which made his younger brother a national hero, Joe Jr. volunteered for a very dangerous mission. In August 1944, Joe flew a PB-4Y Liberator aircraft filled with 12 tons of explosives. He and his co-pilot were supposed to bail out of the plane over France, and the plane would be guided by radio signals to a German rocket facility. On August 12, 1944, the plane left a base in England. For unknown reasons, the plane exploded 18 minutes into the flight before Joe Kennedy or his co-pilot could bail out. They both died in the explosion. JFK's father had always planned that his eldest son, Joe Jr., would go into politics and hopefully become president someday. With the death of Joe Jr., the political hopes of the patriarch of the Kennedy family fell to JFK. John Kennedy had hoped to be a journalist. He didn't really want to be a politician, but he followed his father's wishes. The PT-109 ordeal certainly helped him when he entered politics. When he first ran for the U.S. House of Representatives in Massachusetts in 1946, his reputation as a war hero was a big plus. He won. He had a meteoric rise in politics. After being re-elected to the House in 1948 and 1950, JFK was elected Senator from Massachusetts in 1952 and was re-elected in 1958. In 1960, he was the youngest person ever elected President of the United States. By the way, people often get this wrong. You will often hear that JFK was the youngest president ever. Not true. He was the youngest elected. President William McKinley was shot on September 6, 1901 at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. He was shot by an anarchist named Leon Zalskosh. McKinley died eight days later on September 14, 1901. That is when his VP, Teddy Roosevelt, became president. Teddy Roosevelt was 42 years old when he became president, and JFK was 43 years old when he was inaugurated on January 20, 1961. In case you're wondering whatever happened to that coconut that Kennedy used to carve the rescue message, while president, JFK kept that coconut in a clear case in the Oval Office. It's now in the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library in Boston. While a member of the House of Representatives, JFK went on a three-week fact-finding trip to several countries, including Indochina, in Japan. Indochina was the name of the French colony in Southeast Asia, which later became Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Yes, in 1951, JFK went to Vietnam, but did not realize he was going to be dealing with a war in Vietnam 
about 10 years later. On November 2, 1951, JFK arrived in Tokyo. Kennedy asked a Japanese professor to find the captain of the destroyer, which cut PT-109 in half. Kennedy didn't even know the name of the ship. The professor discovered that the ship was the Amagari, and the captain was Kohei Hanami. Unfortunately, Kennedy did not get to meet Hanami. JFK had to leave Japan abruptly due to a severe medical condition, which resulted probably from his Addison's disease. Kennedy developed a severe fever and collapsed. He was transported to a U.S. Army hospital on Okinawa for medical treatment. He was so bad, he was even given the last rites. On November 8, 1951, Kennedy returned to the U.S. Although Kennedy never got to meet the captain of the Imagadi, they did correspond. In 1952, Kohei Hanami was told that the captain of the PT boat that he had cut in half was a member of the U.S. Congress and was now running for the U.S. Senate. Hanami was shocked. He thought all of the crew of PT-109 had died. Hanami wrote a letter to JFK expressing his friendship and endorsing Kennedy for office. On October 19, 1952, the text of that letter was released to the press along with the story that Kennedy had tried to meet Hanami while in Japan. In the following years, JFK and Hanami kept up friendly letters. Hanami entered local politics in the mid-1950s in his small town and eventually became mayor. After leaving the South Pacific, Kennedy never again met the two young men from the Solomon Islands who had saved him and his crew. But in 2002, those two locals, Byuku Gasa and Ironi Kumana, were still alive and met JFK's nephew Max Kennedy when he traveled to the Solomon Islands. There was a movie titled PT-109 depicting the events of August 1943. Actor Cliff Robertson played JFK. I've seen the movie, and it's mostly accurate, but of course certain artistic liberties were taken. It's not a classic by any means. The movie was released in June 1963, five months before Kennedy was assassinated. On November 22, 1963, John F. Kennedy was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald in Dallas, Texas. Contrary to the nonsense claimed by the conspiracy theorists, there's no doubt that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone and killed John Kennedy. I did a two-part episode going through the Kennedy assassination in great detail. I truly believe that anybody who listens to that two-part episode with an open and reasonable mind will certainly come to the conclusion that there was no conspiracy and Oswald alone killed President Kennedy. The reason I bring the assassination up in this episode is because some believe that the incident on PT-109 contributed to Kennedy being killed in Dallas by Oswald. Kennedy suffered from back problems his entire life. The chronic disc disease of the lower back was greatly aggravated when he was thrown to the deck when the Japanese destroyer sliced PT-109 in half. Although he was a young man and in his early 40s, while president, Kennedy suffered from severe back pain. That's why you see him in a rocking chair in so many photos in the White House. The rocking chair eased his back pain. On the day of the assassination, 
Kennedy was wearing a very stiff back brace while riding in that open limousine. The brace went from his hips to his chest. Oswald fired three shots at JFK. Oswald's first shot missed Kennedy. The second shot hit JFK through the upper portion of his shoulder and out through the front of his neck. We can never know with absolute certainty, but some medical experts believe that any person shot through the neck like Kennedy was would have slumped over in their seat and possibly fallen to the floor of the car. But the back brace kept Kennedy upright and presented a good target for Oswald's third shot. It was Oswald's third shot that hit Kennedy in the head and killed him. Would Kennedy have survived the assassination attempt if he was not wearing that back brace? Maybe. We'll also never know whether he would have had the back brace on even without the PT-109 incident because of his lifelong back problems. But the injuries Kennedy sustained on PT-109 certainly made his back problems much more severe and very well might have contributed to his death. In 2002, the shipwreck of the PT-109 was found. It rests on the ocean floor approximately 1,200 feet or 365 meters underwater. It was a National Geographic expedition. The U.S. Navy confirmed that it is most likely PT-109. What was found with the undersea cameras was a torpedo launching tube with a torpedo inside. They think that the rest of the boat is covered with sand on the ocean floor. But the National Geographic team did not dig into the sand to try to uncover any other remnants of PT-109. Due to the fact that men died on that boat, the U.S. Navy does not allow further exploration such as digging into the ocean floor. That's it for today. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please like this and my other episodes. Ratings and likes greatly help. If you're listening on an app like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which allow for ratings, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating. You can easily leave a review on Apple Podcasts by scrolling down the History Analyze show page, selecting a star rating, and then tapping Write a Review. Please tell your friends, relatives, coworkers, Word of mouth is the best way to increase the audience for this podcast. Check out my website, historyanalyze.com, where you will find links to fun items for all of you history geeks out there. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.